All right. This is podcast episode number 80, the big eight zero. And boy, are we stoked about our guest that we have lined up. It is none other than the CEO of the World Surf League, Eric Logan. And this is a big week for that particular organization uh, because for the first time, they are going to embark on a true championship event, the Rip Curl WSL Finals at Trestles. Carissa Moore, the world number one on the women's side, going for her fifth world title. Gabriel Medina, world number one from Brazil on the men's side, going for his third world title. This thing is going to be epic. You're basically going to have the five top-ranked surfers on the men's side and the women's side doing battle, one-day event. This thing is going to be epic, my man. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I, I'm I'm excited for it. Uh, I think you got to give Eric a lot of credit, right? He is a visionary he is unafraid to change things up and try new things uh, while also being adaptable, I think. And, and so it's it's going to be awesome. Uh, this one day event type of thing. Right. It is it is their Super Bowl, if you will. It is their, you know, game seven of the finals or something like that or the World Series. Like it, it, it brings a finality and uh, an excitement to it. Yeah. So with that, we welcome you to. Uh, this 80th edition of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helly. And just to let you know here for our pregame warm-up dish, uh, that Jordan and I have, uh, we have what is known in the industry as an open podcast relationship. That's right. We have the freedom to do other podcasts. And so when you see Jordan's name attached to another podcast that is quickly gaining in popularity, don't worry. I don't have any hurt feelings at least outwardly, all of that stuff is internalized. And I'll deal with that with my therapist at the appropriate time. But yes, Jordan Helly, give us a, a rundown here of this other podcast that you're involved with. This one is associated specifically with UH football. Yeah, I mean, it's 2021, right? You, you, <laughs> it's, 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 all about, it's all about opening things up, opening up your mind, Kanoa. Uh, and uh, I appreciate that. No, uh, this was mainly a ploy to get a raise on this podcast. <laughs> um, and, as leverage. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, yeah, ESPN Honolulu, um, where you can hear this podcast on their on their app and on their website. Um, uh, restarted their UH football podcast. We're calling it Hawaii Football Now. And uh, I, along with uh, Hunter Hughes, have, have teamed up, partnered up uh, to do a weekly pod. Uh, Hunter Hughes, former uh, quarterback with the University of Hawaii, played for both uh, Norm Chow and Nick Rolovich uh, was there for a number of years and so has has a lot of insight into the program actually has played with a, a few guys who are still playing at the University of Hawaii so he's he's got a good pulse on this group and it's gonna be a lot of fun it's a weekly podcast uh, where you know we'll, we'll recap the previous week's game look ahead uh, to the to the upcoming game and and we're uh, two episodes in and, and obviously with 11 games left on the schedule at least Still a lot to talk about, uh, but it's a lot of fun. We're, we're diving into all the details of UH football. Yeah, so uh, best case scenario, you listen to both podcasts, and you're not, Jordan, in any way contractually obligated to not talk about UH football on this particular podcast, right? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Cross-promotion, baby. We're, we're here to expand the brand. <laughs> That's right. right. I'm trying to get a name-image likeness deal. That's I'm right. I'm trying, trying to start my own cryptocurrency. Brand synergy. Game time topic. And that's right. The Bows bounce back versus Portland State. UH football evened its record to one and one on the season with a 49-35 victory over the Vikings. Hawaii flashed some of its intended prowess, you can say, in the first quarter, scoring four touchdowns on its first four possessions, outscoring Portland State 28-0 to through one. After taking a 35-7 lead into the halftime break, things got a little sloppy for UH, you could say, in the second half, actually getting outscored by the Vikings. Calvin Turner went over 100 yards in total offense, but was stricken with one of those cases of the dropsies mishandling several passes punts even had a kickoff go through his legs rolling into the end zone recovered by portland state for a touchdown uh, meanwhile day day hunter ran for a career high 128 yards and a touchdown for hawaii shevin cordero passed for 305 three tds and an int was also sacked four times and fumbled it away once though so you were there as as part of the spectrum 
pregame and postgame crew. So that was pretty cool to have you. Uh, what were some of the highlights and lowlights for you from this game? What do you make of Hawaii here as they now head into another road game against a favored Pac-12 opponent, Oregon State, which I don't think anybody is uh, now convinced is on the same level as UCLA, who uh, proved their medal certainly against LSU this past weekend. But the Beavers are, at least at this moment, about 11-point favorites. Uh, so what were the highlights, lowlights? What do you make of Hawaii after week two? Yeah, it's it's a group that that showed a little bit more, right? And so is it going to be as bad as it was against UCLA all the time? Is it going to be as good as it was during the first quarter against Portland State? No, it's probably going to be someplace in the middle, right? And, and I think we're still to see this team string together a consistent performance. And, and I think that's the the big takeaway, right? They're, they're still not there. They are still very inconsistent in their level of output. Like they're, they're they scored on their first four drives. That that's something to be excited about. And look, it, it was against an, a team that looked like they hadn't played an official game in over a year. And that was the case with Portland state, right? They played one spring exhibition game, took all of 2020 off because of the COVID pandemic. And it looked like a defense that needed to get their legs under them because guys were running wide open uh, in those first four possessions, but they were in 11 play drive and an eight play drive. The first two drives that ended in touchdowns to start the ball game. Like that is encouraging. Right. If you can march the ball down the field and not have to rely on Calvin Turner pulling a rabbit out of a hat or not having to rely on a deep ball, you know, to a Nick Mardner or something like that. If you can drive the ball down the field, that that's usually a little more sustainable than just having to rely on quick strike. Now, the offense in the second half, a very mixed bag, right? A couple of touchdowns, a couple of turnovers, turn it over on downs a couple or one time in that second half. So it's going to be. It's going to be really interesting to see if they can string together. And then even defensively, right? They only allow seven first half points. And then in a situation where you know Portland State is going to ride the back, really the arm of Davis Alexander, their veteran quarterback and a very talented receiving core, in a situation where it's like, look, they're going to have to throw the ball, right? That is the only way they have a chance of getting anywhere near back into this football game. He ends up throwing for 400 yards. They nearly have three guys go over the century mark in terms of pass catching. Um, and Hawaii did not quite, I think, answer the bell when it came to defending against the pass in obvious situations, right? They dialed up some zero blitzes where you're leaving everybody man to man with no safety help and they got burned a few times. That can't happen, right? They cannot give up the big play with that regularity and hope to have that kind of success. But they did force four turnovers, a couple of picks. The defensive line, I think, played a lot better. We saw the depth. Uh, but again, I, I think the, the main takeaway is a little sloppy and a little inconsistent. But we saw some of the good as well. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it, right, is this is a work in progress as far as solidifying and fortifying the identity of this team. But we saw the intention, I think, particularly in that first quarter with the tempo, uh, with starting quick. We had mentioned on the broadcast, you know, last year, Hawaii scored on its opening possession only three times, two of those touchdowns. One time it was a field goal and they failed to score first five times last season. Obviously that occurred again in week technically zero against UCLA, uh, but we saw that come to fruition against Portland state, albeit an FCS big sky opponent. Uh, but we saw glimpses of what the intention for the identity of this team is going to be. And that's to play with tempo, string together, first downs, uh, start quickly, uh, score in bunches. And then defensively, the intention is to create some havoc and pressure with the front line line that with that D line and we saw them making some plays Ote Baker was pretty strong as advertised off of the edge Pita Tonga had that tremendously athletic interception right the big boy pick uh, that he probably was thinking he could have uh, taken back to the house but the turf monster got him uh, and so you know those are steps that represent progress towards the establishment of the identity of this team but I think this game also proved that there's still a work in progress and, and you know how athletic inertia goes, right? You go off to this blitzing start and maybe you put it into cruise control a little bit. And then the other team starts getting its legs under it. The other team starts making some plays. I don't think Portland state is bereft of talent by any stretch. Uh, they add some talented receivers and that quarterback is something to behold. Uh, and then it's hard to rev it back up again when you have to call upon it. But in the end, Hawaii did ultimately get the W. Now, as for Oregon state this week, I think one of the concerns is, uh, how thin Hawaii may be on the back end of that defense, right? You had Cameron Lockridge, who was penalized for targeting in the second half. And so he has to sit out the first half of this game against Oregon State. It likely means that Hugh Nelson is going to get the start opposite 
Cortez Davis because Michael Washington, another candidate to start at corner, he has not played yet this season because he is dealing with an injury suffered prior to the first game against UCLA. So those are all question marks. We'll see if this defensive line can be as effective in terms of pressuring the Oregon State QBs and, and obviously Oregon State dealing with their own injuries in that quarterback position as well. It's not really set in stone as to who the starter is going to be this week. But if that front line can provide some pressure, if the offense can get back to to that quick hitting nature that we saw in the first quarter, then I think Hawaii will at the very least give itself a shot here against the Beavers. Now, Saturday was also the unveiling of the retrofitted Clarence T.C. Ching Athletic Complex. And you mentioned Nick Mardner. He's the answer to the trivia question, right? The first touchdown, the first guy to get into the end zone at the new facility, Nick Mardner on the touchdown catch from Chevin Cordero. Uh, But you were there once again. What did you think of the facility? You got to experience it firsthand. Obviously, we didn't get the full experience because no fans. I think it would have gotten pretty loud, even if it were just limited to 9,000 people. But that said, uh, what'd you make of Clarence T.C. Ching Athletic Complex the first time around? Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. I, I It was nicer than I even expected. Not that I expected it to look bad or anything, but it felt pretty cool. Just walking out there, the field is beautiful. I think that came across in the television broadcast. Um, uh, what they've done in terms of retrofitting with the stands, the luxury boxes on the Makai side, um, it, it, it works like it works. Like there is a lot of potential for that thing. I think to, to be a little more permanent, to expand maybe even a little bit, but especially with those end zone seatings, I mean, you're what, six yards from the back of the end zone. Like once they fill that thing with students, that's a pretty fun, you know, home field advantage. Uh, you know, the, the, the scoreboard is, is pretty it's got a great video screen the 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 sound system works really well but yeah i can see a team you know you get it once you get fans in there that thing's got a lot of potential it is going to be a very intimate atmosphere it'll be loud um the vistas are great like the sun setting behind stanchurf center on one end and then diamond head out the other end you know what i mean it's 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 picturesque uh, i'm curious what it's going to look like on national television right in a week or so on on Fox when San Jose state comes to town, the defending conference champions, but it, it felt right. Like it, it felt like a home game. And, and, you know, I, I kind of talked about this on the, on the spectrum broadcast, but you know, there had been a lot of talk, right? There had been a lot of talk. Hey, where should the team play? If Aloha stadium is in fact, not the answer. Right. And the new Aloha stadium, isn't going to be the answer for a while. You know, whenever that thing actually gets built, right. It is a, I live on Maui, right? It's you, you're here all the time. It, it, you live here. And it's like, Hey, all the Maui folks wanted it to come to Maui, right? War Memorial <laughs> Stadium. It's the second highest capacity stadium in the state. You had folks saying, why don't we just play all the home games in Vegas? Like, take the show on the road. That felt right. Like, having the University of Hawaii football team playing on campus in Manoa in a venue that is without question their own. Like, there is a lot of history at Aloha Stadium, but it was always a shared history, right? Whether it was all the prep football history that was there, whether it was concerts, whether it was the Pro Bowl like University of Hawaii was the main tenant, but it wasn't theirs, right? This is theirs. This they can take ownership. And I think you felt that. And it translated early on the field, to be honest with you. And maybe that, you know, tapered off a little bit after that early 28 to nothing lead. But it, it felt right. It felt like that is where they should call home. And we'll see if it's something more permanent beyond this temporary, what, three-year arrangement or whatever it is. And I think once you get fans in there, then then the real indicator, the gauge is going to be how many noise complaints do you drum up from surrounding neighbors <laughs> around campus? Uh, it's almost like the more complaints you receive, uh, the better the team's probably doing, right? Because that means that the, the fans are going bananas. So uh, that's going to be an interesting feature and characteristic of this thing. But yeah, I think it, it was... It represents one of the great accomplishments really in the modern history of UH sports as a department because of the fact that, you know, whether you refer to it as the house that Matlin built or the house that necessity built, this thing needed to get built because Hawaii was without a home. Uh, And so it took 141 days to retrofit this thing and for it to be ready. Uh, And for so many people to have lined up and pulled in the same direction proves that, you know, sometimes we see when we come to these big projects, the bureaucracy of this place, the different 
interests from different corners uh, when it comes to any particular endeavor or project that can sometimes get in the way and, and, and create obstruction. We saw everything pull in the same direction here when it came to this project. And for that to have been completed in that quick a period of time, uh, I think represents a, a great accomplishment for University of Hawaii Athletics, and, and who knows what the future holds. They're looking to expand it next year to maybe 15, 16,000 people. Uh, so this thing is gonna take on an even more stadium-like feel, I think, as we move forward. <whistles> All right, well, speaking of UH Sports, Rainbow Wahine Volleyball, ooh, tough one, Ofer in Utah. Ofer three, in fact, they lost at Utah Valley and then lost to San Diego and Utah in the Beehive State. So Hawaii now two and four. How worried are you about the Rainbow Wahine here at this point? A little bit. Not not alarm bells ringing, right? They, they, they played some good opponents on the road. San Diego, obviously nationally ranked. Utah is solid uh, out of the Pac-12. It is it's kind of interesting, right? We talked about Portland State, their football team, starting a little slow in that game against the University of Hawaii for a team that hadn't played basically in over a year. And I think we're seeing a lot of that with the Rainbow Wahine. And it, it's not trying to make excuses for this group or anything like that, but it, it really does look like a group that is still finding their footing, right? That it, That is trying to find some sort of consistency. Uh, I think we're, we're seeing that again, right? The, the passing isn't where it needs to be just yet. Uh, Brooke Van Sickle is having to carry a monster load from an attack standpoint and really a defensive standpoint, right? She leads the team in digs. Um, their, their middle play has been more or less consistent, right? Amber Igedi had a big match. I think it was against uh, Utah, I believe, in the last game of that, that triple match series uh, up on the mainland. But it, it, finding somebody to compliment Brooke Van Sickle on the pin in particular and and finding a way to, I think, shore up some of the passing. It, it looks like a team that just, they need to play, right? They need to keep playing matches and, and get experience together as a group and hopefully find a bit of that as they get closer and closer to Big West play uh, for a team that's that's expected to, to contend and, and picked by many to win the conference. So I think there's a lot of that to it. So it's a little worrisome, right? Yeah, there, there are, what, six matches in, and it it hasn't been great so far. Um, but they are coming home for the pair against USC. That'll hopefully be a little bit of a get right against another Pac-12 opponent. But I really think it's a case that they just need to play more. They need more reps. They need more matches to, to get back in that rhythm, get back in that groove, get back in the, the rhythm of facing that type of competition and not just in the practice gym. That's 100% right. I mean, you look at the Big West Conference teams, only two teams are over 500 after the first two weeks of action. And I think that that calls attention to the fact that the Big West was one of just two leagues that as a whole decided not to play any volleyball last year, right? The Ivy League being the other. Uh, and so all of these teams that Hawaii is playing, and, and, and let's be honest, Hawaii's schedule is pretty good here, pretty strong in mm -hmm. terms of, of the quality of opponents and the competitiveness of these teams that are either, you know, perennial tournament teams or expected to be tournament teams here. Hawaii is trying to make up for experience points that most of the teams they're playing have an advantage with regard to, right? I mean, a lot of these teams played as recently as April or May. And so they're going to be more together. They're going to be more fortified. Those experience points are going to be of value. And Hawaii, like the rest of the Big West Conference in the Ivy League, they're trying to play catch up here early on. Uh, and so I do think that, uh, you know, we have to cut Hawaii a little bit of slack. But hey, this is a fan base that is used to having a very successful Rainbow Wahine program. And so I don't know how patient many of them are going to be. And the person that's probably going to be most critical on her players and say, hey, look, there's no excuses out there is going to be the head coach. Robin Amo. All right, we switch over back to college football. And how about this magical moment for Mackenzie Milton after almost three years removed from a catastrophic knee injury that almost cost him his leg due to the nerve and artery damage also suffered. The Mililani alum and former UCF star completed his comeback by completed a comeback for his new team florida state in the game against notre dame milton was five for seven for 48 yards but he led fsu back from a 10 point deficit in regulation forced overtime where notre dame would actually pull it out after florida state's kicker missed a field goal the fighting irish kicker made one uh, still it was an awe-inspiring you could say tear-inducing 
chicken skin effort from Milton. I will be honest, man, this thing got me misty eyed. I was watching and, and knowing McKenzie, who is a quality dude to begin with, he is so easy to root for. And then to have gone through everything that he went through and to be out there on a nationally televised Sunday college football game and to do what he did, uh, it brought a tear to my eye. Uh, and I was really happy for him. Unfortunately, it didn't come ultimately in a victory. But how did that performance hit you? Yeah, it was emotional, right? Uh, I just, just ultimate chicken skin. Uh, everybody is, I think at this point, very familiar with his story and, and, um, the, the excruciating road to recovery, just to get to the point where he could run around, let alone play again in a collegiate football game. Uh, it, it was, it was awe-inspiring. It, it really was. And the fact that he comes in and leads them to force overtime, right? I, that's, that's something else. The, the other the other thing for this, um, and I can only imagine his parents, man, I was nervous. Holy smokes. Like, the, I was like, all right, he's got to get the first hit out of the way, right? But the first time, like, a guy contacts him, it's like there was like a pit in my stomach. And, and, and he can't go out there and feel that, right? He can't go out there with that sort of fear. And, look, he's looking to, to kind of test his body and whatnot, too, in terms of contact. But but just as a as a fan, a, a, like you said, as a, as a guy who's, who's gotten to know him over the course of his career, covered a number of his games when he was in high school. Like it was, it was all of the emotions, like the, 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 the Ron Burgundy meme of, of the glass case of it. Like it was all of it. It, 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 you know, you almost found yourself sort of out of body where it's like, Oh God, please, please get up, please get up. Right. And it's, it's a little irrational, right. Because he's cleared. Like he, he has been medically cleared at all the doctors, he has gone through all the the, the, the tests and the, the rigmarole of, of getting back out there, and he's fine, right? And he's he's okay being out there, but but deep down, kind of in the back, I was like, all right, look, get over yourself, right? The dude is out there. He wants to be out there. He wants to play, uh, and he nearly upset Notre Dame on coming back as as the hero coming off the bench. Like it, it it's incredible. How do you maintain your composure in a situation like that, right? I mean, so much effort put into making a comeback that nobody really believed you could make. I mean, even doctors were commenting that, yeah, I've never seen anybody come back from something like this before. And so for him to go out there in that situation, on that stage, and to have that level of composure, like, this dude is wired differently. He is just of a different cut. Uh, and I think his character really shone through his poise, uh, which made him and has made him, quite frankly, one of the best college football quarterbacks that maybe we've ever seen. I don't think I'm uh, adding too many superlatives to that statement. So congrats to Mackenzie Milton. Great to have you back, bro. Elsewhere in college football's week one, just really quick, some of the other observations. Uh, Alabama's a juggernaut again. They look every bit as dominant as they did when they won the national championship last year, maybe even more so because that defense might be all-time. Nick Saban, I don't know what this guy does, but uh, it is just unbelievable, the consistency here. Meanwhile, Clemson, which has also been a very consistently strong power program, might have just played their way out of the CFP after getting shut down by Georgia. You also have our guy, Nick Rolovich, head coach at Washington State. They could use a win really bad after falling in the final seconds to Mountain West team, Utah State, on top of some of the negative headlines that are being directed towards Nick Rolovich. So what of these or other storylines stood out to you most from this previous weekend of college football, if you can do it pretty rat-a-tat here? Yeah, uh, Alabama, they're just going to roll everybody. They're going to be double-digit favorites. I can't. I think just about everybody, maybe not Georgia, but it's not like Georgia was all that impressive, right? It was a pick six. That was the difference. Their offense wasn't very yeah. good either against Clemson. Uh, UCLA, uh, how about UCLA defeating LSU in kind of convincing fashion? I think LSU may be a little bit overrated even at whatever they were ranked in the teens. Uh, but UCLA, I think, showing a little bit. Maybe Hawaii fans can breathe a little bit easier. It's like, all right, we got to run off the field by a top-20 team. Right there, there is a little bit of that, and then Washington, right? The state of Washington, unless you're Eastern Washington, who sprung an upset at you. <laughs> know, actually, I take that back. Eastern Washington was favored on the road in Vegas against UNLV, but Montana beats Washington. Wazoo, as you mentioned, uh, a little tumultuous right now for a bunch of different reasons out there in the Palouse. Uh, the the Big Sky with you know multiple wins against FCS, uh, FBS opponents, I should say. But yeah, the Pac-12, not the hottest start for them here the alliance not so strong so far that's right that's right one of my other observations is the last one uh quarterback for miami derrick king as it turns out he's older than six quarterbacks who are going to start this week 
in the NFL, including a matchup that uh, we're all looking forward to of Alabama alums, uh, Tua Tonga-Vailoa versus Mac Jones, Dolphins versus the Patriots, which is uh, going to conclude our week one NFL coverage because uh, we got to get to our main dish here. And that is our interview with the CEO of the World Surf League, Eric Logan, first ever Rip Curl World Surf League Finals event coming up any day now. So uh, we're going to uh, throw to that Eric Logan interview right now. All right. Well, it was pretty early on in our podcast history uh, that we had the privilege to uh, talk to you, Eric. And, and I believe at the end of that conversation, we said, hey, would love to talk to you again sometime. And, and uh, you uh, you oblige here uh, almost a year later, maybe a little more than that, actually, uh, on the cusp of what is going to be uh, really a game changing event for the World Surf League. First off, uh, how's everything going? It's, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, well, first of all, aloha to both of you. Thanks for uh, having me back. Hopefully we didn't drive the, the, the viewership and the <laughs> listenership so far down that uh, we came back. Either that or it took you that long to get your listenership back up again. I'm not sure. So, uh, <laughs> But no, it's, it's, it's great to see you guys. And yeah, it's a, it's a, um, it's a tremendously exciting time uh, compared to where we were when we first started talking, navigating this pandemic and on the precipice of what uh, is undoubtedly going to be the biggest day in professional uh, surfing history. Yeah, no, I believe this will represent the second official listenership peak in our podcast uh, history here, <laughs> having you on. Um, yeah, so okay. let's, let's, let's get to it. The holding period starting for the first ever Rip Curl World Surf League Finals. This is a true championship event, a one-day yes. event. Of course, here in the islands, we're all focused on the world number one on the women's side, Carissa Moore, going for her fifth world title. This is something that's going to stir up the surfing world in a way that we haven't previously seen. So, so give us a sense of what you anticipate and, and just what went into constructing this thing. Sure. Well, maybe we talk, maybe we start here. We, we talk, why don't we talk a little bit about the format? Cause I think it's so new and it's so different from how I think um, most surf fans view events. So what's really different about this format is, is that it is a format that actually takes the full season rankings of the points and puts those surfers how they finish. So for example, on the women's side, we'll stay on the women's side. So you bring up Carissa. We have Carissa Moore, obviously, obviously the, 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 the golden girl uh, of the Hawaiian islands uh, for what she accomplished in the Olympics, four-time world champion, number one, ended the year with the most points. Number two behind her, you know, Kauai girl. I mean, I think, you know, you guys can still like lean in and Tatiana, even though she flies the Brazil flag, but she's got deep roots to Kauai. And so she's number two. And then number three, you know, is uh, Sally Fix Gibbons from Australia. Number four is Stephanie Gilmore. And number five is Joanne DeFay from, uh, from uh, France. So the way the format works is this, is that four versus five will serve in the first match. The winner of that match will surf against the third seed, which is Sally Fitzgibbons. That surfer then will have to surf against Tatiana Weston Webb. That surfer will then have to surf against Carissa Moore in the best two out of three heats to win the world title. Now, since we're doing the men and women the same day, we'll alternate so the surfers aren't surfing back-to-back -back heats. So we'll start with the match five of the men and then go to match five of the women. So the women who advance will have 30 minutes of rest in between it. So what get, becomes very interesting when you think about, you know, where you sort of sit in that ladder, if you will, there's been so much talk about who has an advantage and wouldn't you rather get momentum going. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who are like, well, you know, what happens, you know, if, if uh, Stephanie Gilmore runs the table and then faces Carissa Moore in the best two out of three and then beats Carissa Moore, you know, two out of three heats to win the world title. I'm like, well, she deserves the world title because just like at the gauntlet, she just beat Joanne DeFay. You know, she just beat Tatiana Weston Webb, Sally Fitzgibbons and Carissa Moore, two out of three. How do you tell me that that's not worthy of a world title? And so there's a lot of controversy about it because it's very, very different from what we've done now. I think zooming out for a second, part of the reason why we've been so excited about doing this is because when we talk to our prior world champions, our world champions, and even our contenders, they really relish the idea of staring their competitor in the eye and beating them in the water. Because as we know, we've awarded a number of world titles with people on the beach, in the locker rooms, and sometimes the world title doesn't even make it to pipeline. Sometimes it's awarded in Europe, as you guys know. So 
what this really does is it really anchors our sport around this crowning moment of the most important uh, thing that all professional surfers are going to. So, you know, it's uh, it's been it's been a fun journey for the last year and a half for me to try to get us to this place and and hearing all the controversy and the discussion and the, the debate. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, in this current uh, climate, in, in the world as we know it, controversy can be a good thing, right? Just mm. being at the forefront of discussion is, is always of value. Uh, but what has been, over the course of your introduction of this event, and now here as we're on the precipice of actually getting this thing going, what has been the overall feedback and acceptance from uh, your contingent of surfers? You know, um, it's interesting when you speak to the professional surfers um, whose voices carry a lot of weight with us at the league, they're very excited by it. Um, it, it brings a deeper, more elevated meaning to the world title. Um, I think from a fan perspective, there, there are fans who are super excited about it. I mean, I'm actually back home in Manhattan Beach, but I've been down at Lowers for the last four days. You know, the energy in the town of San Clemente and the energy of people on the beach is, is electric. And you, you see our surfers really locked in in a different way. And, and I think if you're a fan of the establishment of, of how we've always done things, then, you know, you're, you're not going to like it. And that's fair. Um, a lot of people still are questioning why we can't end at pipe. Uh, and I said, well, it's still challenging to have pipeline break in September. I mean, I'm not a wave expert, but I don't, it's not the best time of year for pipeline, as we know, uh, unless you have a motor, which is okay. But what we wanted to do was created, create this, this great moment for us in professional surfing, where we actually can crown them in, in the ocean. And so there's there's a lot of discussion around you know what it means for the status of the world title. I, I think where I come out on that conversation to be really transparent is you know I've had the opportunity as well most of our team again to speak to so many of our prior we have over thirty world champions for representing over seven different countries over almost five decades in addition to our surfers today and even the up and coming surfers. And when you talk to the younger generation surfers about the opportunity to make this final five and to compete for something, it's given them an extra motivation for the year because you know, for them, it is, it is all about the next level of competition. And, and when we get through this and we get on the other side, I'm certain there'll be things that we have to think about. I'm certain there'll be things that we're going to learn because we've never done it before. And, and that's what makes it exciting for, for me as a fan, you know, put my, my role at the organization aside, you know, as a fan, you know, I don't, I don't care where you are. If you hate the format, if you love the format, I mean, look at the top 10 that are going to be surfing head to head over six, you know, six hours. It's, you're not going to turn it off. It's going to be some of the most intense competitive surfing we've ever seen. Yeah, this is this is why I enjoyed talking to you, not to blow smoke, but I feel like, right, if you're talking to a CEO or commissioner of a league, they're not going to acknowledge the detractors, right? They're not going to acknowledge the fact that somebody's going to tell you your idea is not that good. And I think I love that about the WSL, right? You, you, you guys all sort of embrace this. And so how do you balance those, I don't know, traditionalists, for lack of a better term, who love the old format versus trying to be innovative, trying to do something new, while also trying to grow the sport and, and bring in new fans? You know, it's a great point. Um, look, I mean, I've had a lot of different jobs in my career and have I've had to deal with detractors myself in a lot of different situations. Um, I think in, in when it comes to surfing, you know, I, I try to approach this job for me because I I came into surfing for the love and the appreciation of, of what it represents to individuals, to culture and I carry a bit of a reverence with it, with it, you know. And, and so when I hear, when I hear detractors, or I, or I feel the hate, and and believe me, I mean, it, it's not too hard to find how much they just troll me online, and you know, blow up my Instagram feeds and Twitter feeds, and all the stuff that they do, and even the comments I get when I walk on the beach at Lowers or in town, um, you know, good and bad. Uh, but you typically, you typically hear more uh, of of the detractors and the bad ones. And look, I, I engage in those conversations. Um, I try to explain to them that, you know, my intention, you know, as the CEO is to create a platform that elevates our athletes. This is not, you know, really about some Machiavellian, you know, commercialization. Certainly the, the sport needs to continue to be sustainable. Certainly the sport needs to grow. And certainly the, the ideas and things, whether it's Ultimate Surfer that we created or this Apple show that we're doing or these other projects that we're out selling, 
the intention of all of that is so that the the platform that our professional surfers are surfing on becomes bigger because if they become bigger stars there's two things that happen well, there's probably three things that happen. The first thing that happens is for them, it is a much more enticing, lucrative career because that flows through to their individual sponsorship deals, that flows through experience, that flows through their ability to continue to compete and make this a profession. The second thing is it does for us as a league, as we do that, is it actually helps us propel forward to create more reach, to entice larger entities to consume and take our content. You know, this, you know, in order for this really to be super successful and for surfing to move into the next level of success, you know, we need major networks like ABC to take shows like Ultimate Surfer. We need ESPN to take us around the world. We need Sports Center to take the highlights that we see, you know, from the WSL finals and put those. We need all those things to happen. When those things start happening, the machine in terms of revenue, sponsorship, creates momentum that flows again back to our professional surfers. The third thing that's really important about why we do this is because if we can do the first two things right and make this platform bigger and more powerful, what it actually does when you go all the way down to the eight, nine, 10 year old Carissa Moore that is on the North shore of Oahu or somebody, you know, think about Seth Moniz that was looking up to his father for all those years, you know, and to have a clear pathway for Carissa or for Seth to be able to be like, if I commit myself to this sport, there is absolutely a life ahead of me and I can commit myself to it. Major sports, there's not a question if you can have a life and retire and make money and provide for your family if you play basketball or football or baseball. You know, I think that that's a question in professional surfing. I think that's a, that's a legitimate question unless you're of that level. If we can create an ecosystem that is sustainable and actually invite more people to come participate in professional surfing, it benefits, it benefits everybody. It benefits the league today, and it also benefits the professional athletes at the time. So it's probably a little bit of a longer answer of, of when the detractors sort of come around. But I, I, I look at them and just say, I understand what you're saying, but what I'm trying to do is trying to grow the sport for the athletes, for the professional athletes, and especially for the young kids who want a career in this. I think it's fascinating and kind of staying on a macro level. You know, we were excited to talk to you last fall as, as things were getting really revamped, right? And this, this new format was being unveiled and, and switching up the calendar a little bit and starting in Hawaii in the winter as opposed to sort of ending there. Um, looking back then, how did the year sort of play out for you? And did you envision sort of getting to this point in the fashion that you did? Well, I think that we had a clear intention starting the 2021 season back in Hawaii. And I think we talked about it is like we will crown a world champion um, and we are definitely going to do it. And we are going to run the new finals format. And so we entered the year clear eyed about us definitely doing that. Obviously, with the shark attack in Honolulu Bay, the shutdowns, obviously, we had to walk away from sunset. We canceled Santa Cruz. Um, we actually got into and through Australia with that leg successfully coming out of Australia. We had the Olympic break and we did a schedule adjustment to move Mexico on the other side. And in the middle of Mexico, the Tahitian government uh, made the determination to shut down any sporting activities and, we, and literally had to cancel Tahiti in the middle of, of uh, Barra. And, you know, all those decisions that sort of happened are completely un unforeseen. There's just, there was just no way to see how that could uh, lay out. What I kept saying to our surfers and kept preaching to our organization is we have to make decisions based upon what we know today and what we believe to be true tomorrow. And we can't hold that clear path that we thought was going to be the way into it last November in spring. We have to be able to be pliable and move and change. And so that flexibility, I think we had four schedule changes, if I'm not mistaken, over the course of this year. And, you know, you generally want to have zero. You know, you just want to say like, hey, we have one, but we had four. Our surfers had to make tremendous sacrifices. Um, our staff, the surfers' families, the communities we went to, everybody made 
really, really big sacrifices and really had to buy into this idea that we were operating with the athletes and the tour's best interest in mind. And because of that, and because of the, of the community that was formed and, and how we led people to that, we arrive at this place, you know, where we are today, which is we are at lower trestles. We are completely ready to go. We are just waiting for the right six hours and we're going to have the biggest day in professional surfing. Yeah. And on that note, as you mentioned, this this unprecedented championship event, it, it seems like a pretty obvious formula to me. I, you know, I've covered sports my entire adult life, and uh, it just seems as though when the best athletes in a particular sport or at least the most deserving athletes are in action when the stakes are the highest, that's when you get the most intrigue and the most compelling product for that respective sport. And I think that's why the Olympics seemed to resonate so much with people. It was the, the novelty of, you know, these surfers competing on behalf of their nations and their countries for a gold medal. And then for Carissa Moore, obviously from the vantage point of Hawaii to go ahead and pull that off. What was your observation of the impact of the Olympics and, and that first ever surfing competition and, and, and maybe how that kind of resembles what you're putting together possibly here with this rip curl world surf league final well i think it's a really great analog to be to be honest with you you it it is in this regard um you know if you think about it in order for carissa to had qualified for the olympics she had to be one of the top two women from the united states us and hawaii in the 2019 championship tour rankings. Now, granted, she won the world title, so that sort of makes it easy, but, but she had to qualify provisionally through there, and then she had to go to the World Games and effectively just show up, okay? Most other sports for the Olympics, by the way, have multiple things you have to do and hurdles to get over to qualify for your, na your nations. Then you get entered into the Olympics, and the Olympics is a one-day event. It's like it's on and there's no apologies. I mean, Stephanie Gilmore got bounced, I believe, in the second round, um, you know, of the Olympics. And it was an eye opening experience. The reason why I sort of point point to that is, I think, to make your point is, you know, that is a very similar sort of analog as to what happened this year. We had the surfers surf all of our events. We took the top five to qualify for this one day event. And this one day event is going to be how we determine the world championships. Nobody is questioning the, the validity of Carissa's gold medal or the validity of Italy's gold medal. They're really not. I mean, there, maybe there's a CT surfer that doesn't like the score, which we don't need to get on that one. But, you know, we know who that is. But there's there's a there is a there is a clear, undisputed aspect of that. In our case, in our case, we're, we're changing how we award the title. So this is where the the analog sort of breaks down with the core, which is. Well, you know, Carissa would be sitting here with her fifth world title and so would Gabrielle Medina. Why do you have to change it? And and that's a fair argument. It's a certainly it's a fair argument. And I think kind of going back to your point, why would we miss an opportunity to have the best in the world not face off against the best in the world? And you saw that happen with with the Olympics. And I think what I've said to people is like, hey, I understand it. I said, do me a favor. Try to suspend any any sort of preconceived notions that you you, you hate it. You don't like it. Let the day play out. Let's just see how it plays out. And then at the end of the day, let's take a step back and look at what we've created. I, I feel like, Kano, with you, I look at sport that way too. And that was a bit of sort of the thinking with this, which is what we, what we always want to see, no matter if it's tiddlywinks, whether or not it's lawn darts, whether or not it's surfing, rock climbing, you pick your sport. If you tell to the general public, these are the best five people at what they're doing and they're competing for something that is the biggest stakes on the table, humans gravitate toward it. That's what we love as sports fans. And, and that's, by the way, it's part of the reason why, like in the Winter Olympics, we all watch curling. It's like we have no idea what curling is, but everybody watches curling because they're competitive. It's like, yes, it's funny with the broom, but you just see them locked in and it's like, God, they're really, really competitive. We're going to see a level of competitive surfing you know, coming up that I don't think the sport's ever seen. It's going to be intense. I can promise you. I mean, I've been down there. I've been watching them in practice. I've seen how they're talking. It is going to be intense. 
Yeah, I mean, any form of entertainment, right? Music, film, sports, you name it. That crescendo is key. That's what draws people in. That's that's what it, everything builds up towards. So I'm extremely yeah. excited about it. And then on top of that, the layer that you've spoken about uh, really from the beginning when you first got this position was in trying to grow the sport through uh, humanizing and personalizing the stories of the athletes themselves. And you've done that through WSL Studios. Uh, we talked at length months before about the Billy Kemper docuseries and, and how incredible that was and the peek into his life and, and really just everything that he went through mentally and emotionally. Ultimate Surfer, you know, we were just talking about Kai Barger and, and how that's given him new life in his surfing yeah. career. Uh, so how have you seen the growth? Uh, has, it, has it lived up to what you set out to accomplish what your objective has been here, at least in this first year? Um, it's a great question. Um, I would answer it this way. I entered it with sort of the, the macro picture. You know, if we just want to kind of, uh, kind of go back to the macro picture just for a second. You know, the macro picture, Jordan, as you were talking about, is for me, I, I don't know if there's ever going to be like one thing that sort of tips the scale and says that was the one. Um, I think it's a series, you know, I'll use a baseball analogy because I, I played baseball most of my life. It's, you know, it's a series of base hits that win the game, you know, and it's sort of like we just got to get runners on base and you move them over. I'm a bit of a small ball kind of guy. But I think about the studio business and when I was running networks and studios prior to this, that's what I would say to people. I go, look, first of all, the hit factor in, you know, in Hollywood is less than 30 percent. So, you know, you got to have a lot of bats, 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 you got to get it to the plate, get the plate, get the plate. And I think when we look at like the Billy series, or we look at what has happened with Ultimate Surfer, or what we've done with this Apple series with Box to Box, or even how we've changed online these profile videos and how we're producing them much more differently and narratively, even for the final five and having someone like Mick Fanning be the voice of all of them, you know, brings such a level of gravitas and, and, and connectivity that it, it enriches everything you do. So what I think is happening is when you look at Kai Barger or you even look at Zeke or you look at Koa, just using the Hawaiians, some of the Hawaiians that we know, uh, Brianna, I could name them all, but you know, but I just use them as ultimate surfer to see the, what's most gratifying to me is I see the recognition that Kai Barger should have had during his professional career coming to him now, a little late in the game. And that is a wonderful thing. That actually makes my heart sing. To, to, and, and actually for people to see Zeke, you know, for the dynamic care. I mean, everybody knows Zeke is a monster and he's just deadly in the, in the ocean, but you actually see a compassionate side of him. I think exposing the world to those narratives for all those characters is great. And that amplifies kind of back to that very, very first point about how I see us growing the sport, creating superstars, making this platform bigger, and elevating the titans of the sport, the Carissa Moores, the John John Florences, the Gabby Medinas, elevating them to the stratosphere and building this creates all this room for all these other stories, for these other kids and these young kids to come in behind them. Um, you know, so that, I, I think I'd give ourselves a passing grade on it. Um, I, I don't think that I'm, I'm ever going to be one that says, you know, that's the show that turned, I get, to, I, you know, my prior, my prior job, when I turned around the network, that's the question I always get. It's like, what was the show that turned it around? And depending upon the day you asked me, I gave you like five different answers because, you know, there, there really wasn't one show that did it. All right. Just one last one for me, kind of sure. diving back into the event, which will take place sometime over the next week, surf depending. Um, put your analyst hat on. It's an interesting <laughs> format, right? The yeah. sort of the, the bracket style where the number one seed, if you will, will wait all the way to the end. It, do you see an advantage at all? I mean, you know, you, you get a rest on one end, but maybe you get to get in the water a little bit, see what's going on out there. I mean, it's, it's I think you can kind of make an argument that, you know, hey, maybe being the three seed is the best. Hey, maybe starting yeah. off the day and, and getting out there from start to finish. I, I'm kind of curious what you think. Well, uh, you know, I, I've been on the record about this uh, a couple of times, and um, I, I, I think I'm going to reserve my right to change my mind after I see what happens. Just so you know, Jordan, so you can call me afterward and I'll be like, yeah, no, no, I didn't really mean that. I had too much bubbly in the morning, maybe. Um, he, here's what I think. <clears throat> And I, I just, I, I come back to sort of two things. Um, the first thing is that as if, as in every sport, energy and energy conservation is paramount. 
Okay. And I think that when, you know, in our sport, we can make an argument that rhythm and base, this, that is all good. I would agree with that. If it was one heat, I think at the end of the day, if someone is running the table or even if it's Tatiana, and even if it's um, Italo that goes into the finals against Carissa and Gabe, you know, they've had one heat, but at the end of the day, I don't think that one heat makes that much difference of the world of the world. I really, really don't. But I think if you're the three seed and you run up and you get into the final against those two, I think you have a tremendous disadvantage because you've already been surfing 60 minutes of a competitive heat. And there's two parts to energy, in my opinion. First of all, let's keep in mind that wave. That wave is one of the most high performance waves in the world. And I was watching it a couple of days ago. It's pumping. And I mean, they are getting six, seven turns on these waves on the rights and the lefts are getting five or six plus the paddle back out. Okay. So that is exhausting at that level. As you guys know, these athletes are going a hundred percent on every turn and every wrap and every air. And then the mental, that part is actually going to be draining. And now, you know, let's just, let's use the Stephanie Gilmore example. Let's just say, because of her God-given talent, she runs the table and she winds up against a well-rested Carissa Moore her energy is going to be fairly depleted. Yes, she'll have adrenaline, but Carissa's ready. Carissa and Gabe both could walk out of the parking lot today and beat literally anybody in the world, maybe with no wax on their board, as we know. I mean, they're just that good of surfers. So I think it's a massive advantage on the energy side. And I think there's also a little bit of a different advantage too, in terms of, of scoring. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is, as you guys know, when we score heats and our judges score, you know, they, they set scales and you're watching and all the surfers are watching where the scores come from. And they're watching like, oh, they're scoring more over here. Oh, they're scoring more over here. And that is a big, big thing that the surfers always watch. I think having the ability to sit all day and really analyze where the scores are helps those two number one seeds get a real sharp game plan. So I think it is a massive advantage to be the one seeds in this format. Well, you're in an interesting place here as an organization. You could be on the verge of crowning a five-time world champ and a three-time world champ. Among the storylines that could play out is a pretty wonderful thing. So uh, we wish you the best here. We look forward to it. And thank you so much once again uh, for spending some time with us. We, we can't thank you enough. Hey, aloha, my friends. And let's do it again. I can't wait to get back over there after the first of the year and uh, meet you guys in person before the award show and before we open at Pipeline in 2022. It's going to be an epic year. All right. How cool is that? Always a pleasure talking with Eric Logan and uh, the World Surf League. I think it's clear in really good hands. Time for our post game, best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right, I'll start with my best, and my best is Lois Mannon, Associate Athletics Director at UH. She is also a close friend of the late Robert Kekaula, and she did something that was really cool. She brought one of his shirts, you know, those big sized, very loud, colorful Aloha shirts. This one actually had the University of Hawaii sports logo on it, so it was even more fitting. But she brought one of his shirts to the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletic Complex for that UH football home opener, ultimately hung it up in one of the media booths so that Robert could be present and you know that he was and I was thinking about that during the broadcast as well uh, just the fact that man uh, Robert uh, among so many who uh, unfortunately weren't able to be there Colt Brennan Matt Fonga and all of the fans included uh, he would have loved it he would have gotten the kick especially out of the start that Hawaii had in that first quarter but kudos to Lois Mann and that was an awesome classy move reminded us at a time where uh, it was very fitting uh, about Robert K. Kahl, our, our, our former friend and mentor to so many and, and certainly icon here in the islands. Yeah, that was that was really cool. You could feel his presence being there, right? It was like, oh, yeah, Rob, Robert's here in, in one form or fashion. That was that was cool. I think, you know, maybe maybe I uh, provided a little extra juju for the team uh, getting out to that quick start. All right. What's your best, my man? Yeah, my best. I'm watching a Padres game last week uh, and they they like, you know, how they usually at some point during the broadcast, they'll, they'll show who threw out the first pitch, who sang the national anthem that day. And so they did. They did that right on the on the Bally Sports San Diego. Still haven't gotten used to that, by the way, uh, broadcast and uh, thrown out the first pitch was Elima Lay McFarlane, who lives in San Diego now, former Bellator champ. Right. Uh, Punahou grad, Oahu girl. And singing the national anthem was Ellie Mack. 
aka Camille Velasco of local music fame of of American Idol and Maui native. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Uh, and I just I just wanted to make a quick note of that because I was like, oh, those are two Hawaii people, two Hawaii stars, uh, and uh, they got they got to go throughout the first pitch slash sing the national anthem at uh, at a Padres game last week. Yeah, that's a good one. That's very cool. That, that connection to the West Coast, especially Southern California, uh, seems to be strengthening here uh, when it comes to the various forms of entertainment, sports, music. Uh, all right, so uh, now we get to my worst, which I think has turned into my uh, weekly release of the anxiety that is brought on by my absolute disenchantment with humanity. And so this one is U.S. tennis player Sloane Stevens speaking out about the thousands of hateful messages she received on social media after losing her third round match at the U.S. Open. Some of those threatening, many of those racist. It represents something of an epidemic in sports, I think, and really society as a whole, this online bullying and scorn, especially for people that are in positions of high profile uh, losers who are clearly dissatisfied with their own lack of life accomplishments or their own self-image issues or who are merely awful people in general using social media to say things that they would, let's be honest, never have the audacity to say directly to someone's face. Among all of the things that we're facing as a society, this is just one of the things that really continues to get me down and social media just being uh, a platform where people can get away with all kinds of stupidity. It gives voice to the lunatic fringe and we are seeing that in full force. Unfortunately, Sloan Stevens had to feel the brunt of it as many other uh, individual sports stars do. So uh, yeah, that is once again, my commentary on just the sad state of the world and humanity as we know it. But yeah, my faith is eroding quickly as well. I, the, the thing that I, that, that, that even more so, because look, all, all of these trolls, they're just, just terrible, terrible people who just really suck. And then there are the trolls who really, really, really suck. And I would include these people amongst them because it's like, okay, the, the sports troll who is in no way being excused by my comments here. It's like, look, if, if you're a fan of a team, right in in ways that can be kind of jingoistic at times right it is hyperbolic it is blind and it's like look you're 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 somehow taking your frustrations out about this team that you support on say a player or something like that right you you at least have the excuse of hiding behind your fandom for the Boston Red Sox or the Los Angeles Dodgers or something like that right it's like that's where my vitriol stems from and again in no way excusing it in the case of Sloan Stevens or individual sport athletes, there is none of like you are just a terrible person. If you are, yeah, it's an individual sport. What is her losing have anything to do with your self esteem unless you like bet on her or something, right? And if that's the case, you got bigger problems because if you can't <laughs> handle that. But like, what, what, like it did, it didn't cost your team, it didn't cost your hometown support or something like, like she plays for herself. She does. It wasn't even doubles. Like you can't even say like, "Oh, I was cheering for her partner in this." Or like it is an individual sport. How terrible of a person do you have to be to direct that at a person who she just lost? The only person she let down is herself. They all suck. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but that is a special brand of just terrible person. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they take stupidity to another level. So, you know me, I'm always trying to end on a high note. That was my worst. What's your worst? Hopefully it's a little more lighthearted. My worst, somebody who is unafraid to tell you what he thinks to your face. Uh, <laughs> did you see this Rasheed Wallace comment? He said LeBron wouldn't be as successful if he played in my era. So he wouldn't have been as successful if he played in Sheed's era. And I love Rasheed Wallace. Like I am a huge Rasheed Wallace guy. Ball don't lie. I love his, like those Pistons teams, those Blazers teams. I love me some Sheed. But come on, man. Does, did he just forget the 25 in a row, 29 of 30 to force double overtime game in that 2007 Eastern Conference Finals? Like even she couldn't be like, oh yeah, we were washed up. Like they were fresh off of back-to-back Conference Finals appearances, fresh off of back-to-back NBA Finals appearances, winning it in 04. Like, those were good Pistons teams. Like, punch you in the mouth, low-scoring, defensive, juggernaut Piston teams. And LeBron did that at, what, 22? 21? 23? I, like, come on. Come on, Sheed. Like, they're... 
careers overlapped. So he's talking about like, like my era, like his era <laughs> included LeBron. I mean, yeah, it was a young LeBron, but it included LeBron. And he was like already winning like MVPs or putting himself in line, making it to NBA finals. Like get out of here with that. Like the fallback argument is always, oh, because the game was officiated differently back then, right? Because they were allowed to be more physical, especially in the playoffs. And it's like, all right, so you're telling me that the guy who is about the same size as Carl Malone, but has the athleticism of Michael Jordan is going to uh, suffer and not thrive in that environment where you can play all out man. And in fact, you are disallowed to pack the key and play more of the zone defenses that we see. So you, you mean LeBron will have a chance to have even more straight beeline seams to the rim and he's not going to succeed. Like get out of here with all that BS. I hate that argument, man. Yeah. I just, I just thought it was so funny. It's like, well, we kind of have evidence. Chief. This, is, this isn't, you know, uh, Rick Mahorn saying this or, or you know Bill Lambeer or something like that it's like no 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 you guys played each other a bunch and he was really good a lot of those yeah, times yeah so I just thought it was fun I still love Sheed like don't get me wrong me too. I, I, I chuckled more at this one than it's like oh man these guys get off my lawn I was like ah this is kind of funny yeah I, I love Sheed it's a bit revisionist history on his part and um, I can't wait to slide into his DMs and give him a piece of my mind <laughs> That was our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Thanks once again to Eric Logan for joining us. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. We'll do it again. Don't have too much fun on your other podcast. All right, Jordan? I'll be back. <laughs>